without further ado, would you please put your hands together for our very dear brother, Timothy Barton. Well, thank you guys so much. You guys, please have a seat. I'm excited to be back again tonight. Um, I, I, sometimes I chuckle. Um, your, your, your pastor's great. Um, sometimes he says things, and, and the thoughts in my head are different than the words coming out of his mouth. Um, and, and sometimes there's funny thoughts in my head. Um, sometimes you got to let stuff go, but in your head you're like, that was really good. And I'm not sure what moment that's in. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll pray and move on. But uh, just know sometimes funny things happen. And um, self-control is not my, my strength necessarily, but the Lord's helping. Um, tonight, <laughs> we got to move on. Uh, there's too much to talk about. Uh, tonight, I do want to get back and I want to talk about our nation. And funny things. Um, when you look at our nation, it is remarkable. We talked this morning, if you were here, or if you were at the prayer breakfast on Saturday, um, we talked a lot about our nation and, and really what the founding fathers did uh, in establishing and birthing our nation. They gave us something that made us a very unique nation. Um, with the framework of government that they established, it really made us a different nation than any other nation in the world. And just, just for example, I've talked a little bit about how we are a unique nation. Let me just show you some of these unique things about us. If you look at the United Nations, this last year at the United Nations, there was 195 member nations. And that number literally changes every single year based on who's gone to war with who, who's conquered, who's captured who. Last year, there was 192 nations. Year before that, there was 191. This number changes all the time. What's interesting is of the 195 member nations that were there, we were one of the only nations that did not average a revolution every 30 to 40 years. Now, I look at the news and I see what's going on over in Iraq and you can see what's happening with ISIS and, and, and earlier you had Egypt and you had Syria and you look at all the civil unrest around the rest of the world and as Americans, that scares us a little bit. We look and go, I can't imagine and we can't imagine, but that's because we enjoy stability. For the rest of the world, that's not that unusual because for most nations, every 30 to 40 years, they go through revolution. We've had such stability in America, we cannot imagine that. In fact, in our entire existence as a nation, I mentioned we've only had one form of government. Why that's impressive? You start looking at some of the other nations, and you look at how many constitutions they've had. France went through a revolution the same time we went through our revolution. They've had 15 constitutions. We're still in our first. In fact, if you go to Poland, if you are 95 years old in Poland, you lived in seven different forms of government. We're still in our first. Even if you look at places uh, like South Korea, South Korea is considered one of the top 10 economically free nations, one of the most productive nations as far as economics, free markets concerned. They've had six constitutions in, in the last 60 years. It's unbelievable. We enjoy such stability in America, and it really is unprecedented when you start looking at the rest of the world. I mentioned also this morning that, that we enjoy a lot of prosperity. This is very significant because we only make up 4% of the world's population, but we account for 25% of the world's wealth. Now, if you're very good at math, 4% should not have one quarter of the world's wealth, but we do in America. We are so blessed. In fact, the U.S. Census Bureau 
according to their last study, they identified the people that live in poverty in America, and they identified the people that live in poverty, what their life is like. You know what's amazing? The people that live in poverty in America statistically are more likely to have a telephone, to have a television, to have an air conditioner, to have their own vehicle, to eat more red meat, and have more square footage of living space than the average middle class in Europe. And Europe is the second wealthiest place in the world. You're better off in poverty in America than middle class anywhere else in the world. Then it's no wonder there's an immigration problem in America. Because everybody's realizing, you know, if we could just go be in poverty in America, we would significantly improve our condition. And that's exactly right. In fact, in Texas, we have 1,200 illegal immigrants cross the border every single day. Every single day. 35,000, more than 35,000 every month that enter Texas. We're not even including Arizona or California or anywhere else, just Texas. There's a lot of people that want to live in America. See, America is a little more special sometimes than the news media lets us know. But a real good measurement, if you look at a nation, just see who wants to get in and who wants to get out. If more people want in than one out, that might be a pretty good measurement for you. Because you think about China, they don't have an immigration problem. Egypt doesn't, Sudan doesn't. You start looking at the rest of the world. North Korea has a problem, but that's for different reasons. They're trying to get out, not get in. You just look at the fact that people want to be in America. It's pretty significant. And by the way, you look at other things like creativity. I mentioned we only make 4% of the world's population. You know, every single year, that 4% of the population comes up with more inventions, more, pat more patents, more symphonies. Unbelievable stuff every single year than the rest of the 96% of the world combined. America does more every single year. It's unbelievable when you start to look at this. This is why we used to say America is an exceptional nation. Now, today that phrase is not popular. In fact, most professors at universities hate that phrase. Most commentators, and, and, and I, by commentators, most political pundits, most TV commentators, they despise the notion of American exceptionalism because they say, well, how can we say we're a special nation? Because that means we're looking at our nose at other nations. It's really pretty ridiculous to have this argument, but the reality is Jesus said, you judge a tree by its fruits. And if it produces really good fruit, it's a good tree. If it doesn't produce good fruit, not, see, if all we did was measure the productivity of what America has produced, what America enjoys, stability, liberty, freedom, prosperity, we really are an exceptional nation. The problem is we don't know how to define exceptionalism anymore, and that's why most people don't understand how exceptional our nation is. So tonight, let me just define American exceptionalism for us. American exceptionalism describes the unprecedented stability, freedom, and prosperity that is a result of the institutions and policies produced by a unique governing philosophy. Now, that is a sequence it builds on. Because we had a unique governing philosophy, it really produced the institutions and policies that we have in America. Those institutions and policies we have in America are what produced the stability, the freedom, the prosperity, and, and that's really what we understand as American exceptionalism. So if we track back, where did American exceptionalism come from? It really came from the unique governing philosophy that we birthed the nation on. And, and, and just a practical example, it's really, if, if you think of, of something like a fruit tree, it's really like a fruit tree. If you enjoy the fruit of the tree, well, where did that that fruit come from? It came from the seed that birthed that tree. So if you want to know what, what was it that was so special, look at the seed. Because the seed is what brought everything else. The seed, our philosophy, is what produced the structure, the body of that tree. The body in America we'd call it the institutions and policies. Those institutions and policies or that body is what produces the fruit, our stability, freedom, and prosperity. Well, if we really enjoy what we enjoy in America, 
What you need to know is what was the seed that was planted? Because that's what produced all that we enjoy. So if we enjoy that, the question is, what was the seed? And if we ask that question tonight, what was it that produced American exceptionalism? I want to start by just giving us a real simple thought. And really, it goes back to our national birth certificate. In 126 words, we outlined five immutable principles in the Declaration. There were five things we understood in the Declaration that we said, this is what we believe about government, the way government should operate. We laid out our philosophy of government in the Declaration. And I think you'll recognize most of these phrases. This is the first one. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. Now, it used to be very commonly understood if there is creation, there had to be a creator. Now, for some reason today, we're confused by that. We think, no, no, we just evolved. That's billions of years. That doesn't make any sense. But the Declaration laid out real simple the very first principle that we built our government on. It was there was a divine creator. And because, by the way, if, if, if there is a divine creator, there are certain things that flow from that. And if there's not a divine creator... It completely changes the entire ballgame. Everything is, but we understood, no, there is a divine creator. And by the way, this is why we said the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, this wasn't just 56 guys that got together and said, this is what we believe. No, there was a unanimous declaration. See, in early America, everybody believed, unanimous, that there is a divine creator. These were things we all agreed. Now, there were a lot of things we disagreed on. There were a lot of things we didn't like and, and things people thought, that's a terrible idea. But this was something we all agreed on. There is a divine creator. In fact, George Washington, when he became the first president in 1789, he had a, a prayer proclamation in October. And this was the very first presidential prayer proclamation. It was, he called for a day of thanksgiving. And, and so he set this day aside. But this was his proclamation. And, and I want to read just the beginning of what he said in this proclamation. This is what he outlined in his, the very first ever presidential prayer proclamation. He explained that it is the duty... And I'm going to pause right there for the word duty. If you look up the word duty in most dictionaries today, the word duty is described as something that ought to be done. Now, that's not quite what was meant when the founding fathers used the word duty. In fact, in Webster's 1828 dictionary, Noah Webster defined the word duty as something that was considered a legally binding contractual obligation. So it's not just something you ought to do. It's something you consider that is, that's a legally binding contractual obligation. George Washington says... It is the legally binding contractual obligation. And notice who he said. It's the duty of all nations. Nations have a duty. And he said there's four things nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do. He said, number one, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. We acknowledge. Nations need to go, hey, there is a God. We acknowledge there is a God. Number two, to obey his will. There is a God and we have to do what he wants. Number three, to be grateful for his benefits. Remember the Israelites constantly got themselves in trouble? There was only two things they ever did wrong. Forgot who God was and what God had done for them. And we said, no, no, we're going to remember who God is and do what he says, and then we're going to be grateful for what he has done for us. Washington says, this is, this is, this is a responsibility not of Christians, but of nations. Nations have responsibility. And number four, humbly to implore his protection and favor. We're going to pray and ask for God to protect us and give us his favor. This is how Washington started off the very first thing. Well, this just followed up the notion. We understood there is a God. This goes back to what we said in the Declaration, that there is a divine creator. We understood there is a God. Now, following up that all men are created equal, what we understood was that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
Now, unalienable rights, that is something we believe that God had given to us. God has given us inalienable rights. Now, for most of us today, it would be very beneficial to understand inalienable rights. And that doesn't mean what we think it is. It's always helpful to go back to the original source. In fact, the founding fathers explained what are inalienable rights. So if you go back and see what the founding fathers said, this is how they explained it. John Adams, he said, Inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments and cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. They are rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. Inalienable rights are rights that come from the great legislator of the universe, meaning God. But notice how he started this. He said, they're rights that are antecedent to all earthly governments and therefore cannot be repealed or restrained by government. Now, you think about this. Where did God first give government? Or where did God institute government? Where did God establish government? You look at the Bible. God established government in Genesis chapter 8. It was called the Noahide or the Noahic Laws. When Noah landed on Mount Ararat, God shows up to Noah and God gives Noah the very first civil ordinance where God tells Noah, if man sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That was the very first command that God gave for a civil government to uphold. Now, that's where God established government officially. But when did God give rights to man? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1. That's when rights came to man. So, so John Adams says that our God-given rights came before we ever had government. And therefore, government cannot repeal or restrain what God has done. Because they came before there was government. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what John Adams just explained. Then you have people like John Dickinson. John Dickinson was a brigadier general in the revolution. He was a governor of Delaware and governor of Pennsylvania. He also was a, a framer, signer of the Constitution. This is how he explained inalienable rights. He said, a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. Now, next to God, everybody's an inferior power. So he explains that's something you got from God and, and it's really secure forever. No one can touch it. It's fine. Because nobody but God can touch those inalienable rights. Then you have people like Alexander Hamilton. He was one of the three guys that did the Federalist Papers. He was very involved in the revolution. This is how he explained it. He said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the aid of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. We understood real plainly, inalienable rights are something that God gave to you. It's a right God gave to you. That, that's what an inalienable right is. Well, if we understand inalienable rights are rights that God has given to us, it would be logical to follow up with the question, well, then what are those rights that God gave to us? What, what are those defined rights? Because we understand these are God-given rights, but what are our God-given rights? Well, this is something that, that Sam Adams addressed pretty well. Sam Adams, by the way— we, we know very little about the founding fathers. Sam Adams is, is really kind of a sad story because Sam Adams, most people know the name, but for the wrong reasons. There, there's only one reason people seem to know Sam Adams. Now, the reason I say it's kind of sad is because Sam Adams was considered the father of the American Revolution. In fact, if you've ever heard of the Boston Tea Party, he's the reason that happened. He was the one in charge of the Sons of Liberty that was done by the Sons of Liberty. He, by the way, when the British first landed in America, when, when we had the battles of Lexington and Concord, when the British went marching to Concord, they went marching to, to seize the military storehouse of powder, of munitions, of guns. But the order, we actually have a, a copy of the very original order that the British had when they came to America. And the order says also they were required to seize the body of Mr. Hancock, John Hancock, and Sam Adams. Because those two guys were blamed for the revolution. John Hancock was the president of Congress, and Sam Adams was considered one of the voices of liberty because of what he was doing. And the king says, if we can stop those two guys, we probably can stop this revolution before it gets carried away. 
He was considered the father of the revolution. Today, most people have never heard about that. But the father of the revolution, this is what he said were our inalienable rights. He says, very first, you have a right to life, secondly, to liberty, and thirdly, to property. Now, most of us today know of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They actually defined it as property, not the pursuit of happiness. In fact, all the original records, they used the word property. And the reason was, it was kind of the notion of the American dream. They've been in Europe, and the king owned and possessed everything. And they said, we want to be our own owners. We want to have our own land our own boss. We want to be somebody. It was the American ideal, the American dream. Come to America and be somebody. It was life, liberty, and property. And by the way, when you look at the Bill of Rights, it's laid out very well in the Bill of Rights that we were protecting property. But also the Bill of Rights lays out other inalienable rights that God gave to you. Like God gave you the freedom of religion and speech and assembly and self-defense. The Bill of Rights lists all the things that God has given that government cannot intrude on. Because those are rights that came from God. Well, this is what we understood secondly is that we have God-given rights that government cannot touch and take away. In fact, we then explained the government's role in this position of our God-given rights. They said that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The reason we have government, government is here to protect our God-given rights. That is the reason they said we are establishing government. Now, they didn't list a whole lot of other reasons. So if you look back at this philosophy, the reason we had government wasn't to do everything we think it should do today. It was to protect what God's already done. That's the reason we have government. And by the way, that's what you see in the Bible. God didn't establish the government to provide and care and do for people. It was to protect what God had already done for people. This is why we had government. By the way, James Wilson was one of only six guys to sign both the Declaration and the Constitution. He was an original justice on the Supreme Court put there by George Washington. He also started the very first organized law training in America. Started, uh, he was one of the very first professors ever to teach law at a school. So the very first law students came under him. He wrote some of the very first law books in America. This is what he taught his law students in America. He said, the principal object of government is to acquire a new security for the enjoyment of rights which were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise and all-beneficent creator. He told the students, the reason we have government is to protect the rights that God has already given to man. Sam Adams, he explained that government was originally designed for the preservation of the unalienable right. The reason we did government was to protect our God-given right. And this is when he then explained what those were. He said, first, the right to life, secondly, to liberty, and thirdly, to property. This is the reason government was done, was to protect those. Now, what's interesting is what he said. He says, the very first thing is a right to life. Now, it's what the Declaration says, that it's a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But he says the right to life. It's interesting the word he chose, the right to life. Because today, we, we deal with the right to life. Well, for us, the right to life is, is the abortion issue. Now, let's just pause and think. How cool would it have been? How many problems could be solved right now today if when they said a right to life, they would have been dealing with the issue or talking about the issue of the unborn? Can you imagine? I mean, Roe versus Wade would be overturned so far. I mean, this would be so cool. You know what's interesting is, is sometimes we look back and we pretend like where we are is not where other people have been before us. But you know, Solomon said something very interesting in Ecclesiastes. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, wall builders, we've been very blessed. We have over 100,000 original documents that predate 1812. One of the books that we have in our library is this book right here. Observations on abortion from 1808. I thought abortion was a brand new issue. 
I mean, it wasn't until 1973 when we had the Roe versus Wade, and this is when abortion became legalized in America. No, the reality is, as long as there were girls getting pregnant, there were girls that didn't want to be pregnant. Abortion's not a brand new issue. Technology has certainly changed, but issues don't change because it's human and human nature, and this is something we deal with in every generation. See, when Sam Adams says the very first thing is a right to life, he's literally talking about the right to life. It's interesting, the founding fathers did talk about this in pretty good detail. James Wilson, in his law books, teaching his students in his lectures, this is what he told them about the right to life. He says, with consistency, beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. Now, the common law, we'll talk more about it in a little bit, but the common law is what we operate under in America. He explained, in the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb. By the law, that life is protected. Now, let me just break this down a little bit more. He says, if you have a baby and that baby is alive in your belly, the law in America protects that baby. Now, what's interesting, he says when the infant is first able to stir in the womb. Why would he say when the infant is first able to stir? Well, think about what the time period was they were in. When did you know you were pregnant? When that infant started stirring in the womb because they didn't have technology to know. You know, our technology shows us a little sooner when you're pregnant. He explained, as soon as you know you're pregnant, that life inside you is protected. In the law in America. It's interesting. The founding fathers did not make this a confusing issue. In fact, you look at people like John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was the president of Princeton University. He was a signer of the Declaration. He served on the, on the New Jersey legislature. Really incredible guy. But after we did the Declaration, he goes over to Europe, and he actually is, is doing some foreign relations in Europe, and he was looking at issues in Europe and in France. And he was talking about some of the... The, the, the ways they were handling issues, and this issue of the unborn and of children came up. And John Witherspoon explained this about what made America different than France. Here's what he said. He said, a perfect right in the state of natural liberty is the right to life. Now, here's what he said, because in France, they wanted freedom. He, in, in France, the, during the French Revolution, their motto was uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity. They, they wanted liberty. They wanted freedom. But he explained, if, if, if you want freedom, understand, freedom, you've got to protect that life. And this is what he explained. He says, in America, we have denied the power of life and death to parents. Just ponder that. He said, in America, we don't let parents decide if they're going to keep their baby or not. A parent's decision is before they got pregnant. After they're pregnant... You can't touch that baby anymore because that baby has an inalienable right to life that came from God. This is what we understood in America. Notice Sam Adams says the very first thing is the right to life. He says that's the very first. Now, why would he say that's the first thing? We could argue without the right to life, none of your other liberties matter because you can't enjoy them if you're dead. So the right to life really should be first. But you know what's interesting the right to life really does reveal a lot about a person's beliefs, their ideology, and their worldview. Because if you just look at the way a person views a right to life, do you know based on the way someone views a right to life, especially if we talk about politics, do you know I can tell you where a politician stands on almost every other single issue just based on the way they view a right to life? And let me explain. If they do not believe that God is the author, the giver, the sustainer of life, that life comes from God, then they probably also don't think I should be able to publicly acknowledge the God who didn't give me life. But if you believe that God is the author, the giver, that God is, is the creator, the sovereign of life, then you probably believe I ought to be able to acknowledge the God that gave me life. 
I ought to be able to pray in public schools or before a high school football game or before a city council meeting. But if you don't believe that God is the author and giver of life, see, I can tell a lot about the way somebody thinks just based on the issue of life. Just based on the issue of life, I can tell you exactly what somebody thinks about my ability, God-given right of self-defense. Because if God's not the author and giver of life, life does not have the highest value, therefore you cannot defend life. It's real interesting. As a uh, Texican, I'm sure as Alaskans you feel the same way. I value my God-given right of self-defense. Now let me go ahead and tell you something. In Texas, I'm only, I'm only 155 pounds. And I got a wife and we're working on kids and I'm excited about having a family. I run marathons just for fun. I'm that crazy. So I'm not worried about bad guys if I'm by myself because I'd like to play chase. Catch me if you can. But that won't work too good if I got my wife. Because I can outrun everybody, including my wife, but that's not going to help her. But I got 17 reasons. You ought to leave me and my wife alone. They're all 115 grain. Here's the bottom line. That's a God-given right of self-defense. Everything you see in nature has a right of self-defense. But if someone does not view life as a gift from God, I already know how they view the issue of self-defense. I know that. But if someone does not view a right to life correctly, I can also tell you what they think about marriage. Because if God does not the author, the giver, the creator of life, then marriage wasn't a covenant that God established between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's just a contract, a piece of paper. Anybody who wants to get married can get married. Based on the way someone views a right to life, I can tell you the way they view marriage. Based on the way they view a right to life, I can tell you the way they view private property. Because if you don't believe that God is the author, the sovereign of life, you probably also don't believe in the Ten Commandments that says don't steal and don't even covet with somebody else's. And I wish the government knew that a little better. Because the government's always trying to come in and tell me what to do with my stuff and how I can do and where I can do and what I can do. It's mine. Leave it alone. You've got to be kidding me. Just based on the way someone views the right to life, I can tell you the way they view most other issues. Now, a lot of people today would say, now, Tim, that's fine, but those are mostly social or moral issues. And if you look at our government today, a lot of people are more concerned with economics than they are with the social issues. Now, I understand where you're coming from, because if you look at the condition of our nation, we have a lot of economic problems. We are loading ourselves with perpetual debt. We are not in a good place economically. What's interesting, though, is if, if you look, just take the issue of economics. Let's just talk about that. The Americans for Tax Reform, they actually go through, they're an organization that, that studies the way that congressmen vote on economic issues. And by the way, there's groups that will, will track the, the way representatives vote on, on whatever issue you care about. If you care about guns, and maybe the NRA does that. If you care about the environment, whatever you care about, there are groups that will see how elected officials do on that issue. Americans for Tax Reform, what they do is they deal with economic issues. And so they went to Congress, and what they did is they made a list of the very best economic representatives. And they make a list every single year. You can get on their website. You can see who the very best economic representatives are. And these are their very best economic representatives from last year. Now, significantly, there's also groups like the National Right to Life. And the National Right to Life, the only issue they track is the issue of life. And they made a list of the very best people on the issue of life. And here's their list. Huh. Maybe that's just coincidence. Well, if you look 
for instance, they, Americans for Tax Reform do the worst economic representative. National Rights Alive does their worst. Huh. This is what blows me away. And as Christians, we can't be so naive not to understand this. If you don't get the first thing right, why would you get anything else right? And let me just give you a real simple principle. When you look at economic positions, the right to life still matters. And here's why. Because if they won't protect your life, they're not going to protect your money. It's not that complicated. See, this is why Sam Adams says the very first right is the right to life. It doesn't matter what your issues are that you're concerned with. The right to life will reveal to you where they stand and help you know if they're going to do good on economic issues or social issues. The right to life really is the first thing. And this is where we explain in the right to life, this is one of the things we said government's job is to protect our God-given rights. The very first one's the right to life. Well, the fourth thing we see in the Declaration is to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. The laws of nature and nature's God were something we used to describe that God had a standard, a fixed moral standard. And this is really what, what they're describing. There is a fixed moral standard. And the laws of nature and nature's God, by the way, is a very specific phrase. That phrase came from the law books of William Blackstone. William Blackstone, a very famous writer uh, with issues of law. In fact, John Adams said that, that American lawyers studied Blackstone like Muslims study the Quran. So this was something American lawyers really knew that. In early America, everybody knew where that phrase was and where it came from. Everybody knew that came from Blackstone. Well, Blackstone, when he wrote about the laws of nature and nature's God, what he explained is that everything we need to know about life can be seen in the laws of nature or the laws of nature's God. And here's what he explained. He said, if you just look at the laws of nature, if you just look at creation, there's an awful lot of things you can learn that are right and wrong just by looking at creation. For instance, you take the issue of self-defense. Just look at creation and you would know that self-defense is the way God intended it because you see God put that in every single animal. An animal feels threatened, what are they going to do? Defend themselves. A mama sees her babies in trouble, what's she going to do? Defend the babies. It's in nature. God put it in creation. You can just look at creation and know that's the way God intended it because that's the way God made animals. That's the way they function. This is what we understood. This is the way God intended In fact, do you know we have more than 10 million species in creation? 10 million, that's an awful lot. Do you know that every single species, when they are born, they're born free? There's not a single species that enslaves another. You should just look at creation and know slavery was never God's idea. That was not God's intent because God made everything born free. Now, as I say that, William Blackstone, the founding fathers, really did support this idea. And as I say that, a lot of people that I speak to have a problem with me saying that because they go, wait a second. The founding fathers, they were all racists and bigots and slaveholders. And this is what we hear a lot about the founding fathers. So let's just stop and talk about this for a second. Understanding this is what is predominantly said about the founding fathers today. Actually, I had a group of, of 15 legal interns this summer at Wall Builders. And I was talking to them about this. And I said, have you guys heard the founding fathers were, were racist and bigots and slaveholders? And they all said, oh yeah, we have. I said, okay, well, well then let the, let's just do a little trivia. These are the 56 guys that signed the declaration. Can you identify for me the people that had slaves? And they said, well, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. And I said, he sure did. Can you name anybody else? And somebody said, well, George Washington, and I had to remind them he didn't sign the declaration, number one. He, he was the general during the revolution. He was commander of the American forces. But number two, I don't know a single historian, black, white, anybody else that would identify George Washington as a racist because George Washington treated the slaves better than most American colonists lives. So 
Washington, and by the way, I will also point out there were about four or five names that we could come up with, only one that signed the declaration. There's about 250 guys that could be identified as founding fathers, and most people can't name more than four or five. You have George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, Alexander Hamilton, and it's usually those four names that people can come up with. By the way, they all lived in Virginia, which is also interesting. However, the declaration, we know about somebody that owns slaves. So I said, wait a second, okay, hang on, because I'm talking to these interns, and I said, okay, we know about one guy. You're going to tell me they were all racist and big into slaveholders because one of them did? I said, let's be honest. Now, I'll, I'll, let's, church example. If I was at your church for the very first time and the crazy person from your church came and started talking to me, <laughs> every one of you would be like, oh, no, 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 help get him away. Everybody's got a crazy member. That don't mean you're all crazy. To say because one guy had slaves, understand the inconsistent logic. Because one man had slaves, they're all racist and bigots and slaveholders. That's, that's, that's inconsistent and it's, it's intellectually dishonest. However, do you know if you look at the guys that signed the declaration, do you know actually Benjamin Franklin and, and Dr. Benjamin Rush in, in 1774 started the very first abolition society in America. But at the time they were British colonists in a British colony and, and the governor at the time was a British appointed governor and the governor told them, you are not allowed to abolish slavery because it's part of the British practice. So those two guys said, maybe we don't wanna be British anymore. The reason they joined the revolution and signed the declaration was because they wanted to see slavery abolished in America. In fact, Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush started the very first abolition society in America, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. And then Benjamin Rush went on and founded a national abolition society because he said we can't just do this in Pennsylvania we got to see this spread everywhere then you have people that signed the declaration Benjamin Franklin he joined up with Francis Hopkinson and they started a series of schools to educate black people which by the way was illegal in every southern state all the way up till the end of the civil war blacks could not be educated in America and the reason was it was readily understood it's easier to control an ignorant people if we can keep them uneducated, we can control them. And their greatest fear in the South was that if blacks learned to read, they might read the Bible. And if they could read the Bible, they would get an idea of what God had intended and created, and then they would fight for freedom even harder, and they'd be too hard to control. We got to make sure they can't read, because if they started reading, they might read the Bible. It'd be all be over. Well, these two guys, when it was still illegal in the South, they started schools to educate blacks. All the way back then, during the revolution, they started a series of schools just to educate blacks and African-Americans. Then you have people like Stephen Hopkinson. He was a governor of Rhode Island. When we signed the declaration in 1776, he actually was one of only two governors who were governor before and after the declaration. He was governor before, appointed by the British, but he really was a, a very loyal American patriot. And so after we signed the declaration, he was voted back into governorship. Well, before the declaration, they had tried to abolish slavery in Rhode Island. And the, the king had said, you can't abolish slavery. After the declaration, within one month of the declaration being signed, they abolished slavery in Rhode Island. It was the very first state to abolish slavery. By the way, after the declaration was signed, eight of the 13 states abolished slavery within the first year. Why have we never heard about that? See, the South always had slaves. The North said, we're done with this. In fact, Jefferson, when he wrote the declaration, he actually put a provision that the king will not allow us to end slavery, and we want to, of the 27 grievances, and three southern states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, all three said, no, no, we like slaves. We don't want that in, in the declaration. So he removed it. It wasn't in the final 27 grievances, but it originally was there, except for three states that had a problem with it. You can also look at people like John Witherspoon. When he was president of Princeton University, there was never a time that he didn't educate blacks and whites together. Even when it was illegal to do it, 
He brought them to college and he taught them and trained them. You have people, William Ellery, he joined up with Rufus King. They're the ones, when, when we were doing the Bill of Rights, that's when we also did the Northwest Ordinance. He joined up with William Ellery, uh, or excuse me, with Rufus King, and they did the Northwest Ordinance. They're the two guys that put it together. The Northwest Ordinance said if any new state wanted to join, they could not have slavery and join the Union. You could not be a slave state and join in America because we're not doing slavery anymore. That was a sign of the declaration that did that. You also have people like James Wilson. James Wilson, he actually was one of the guys during the Constitution Convention. He argued to abolish slavery. And he said, let's give the southern states, because the southern states said, wait a second, we got to have slavery because our farms are too big. We can't function without slaves. He says, okay, then here's what let's do. Let's give a 20-year provision for you to wean yourself off slavery until and, and so you have 20 years to finally get rid of all your slaves. That way you can learn to function and work without having having to use slaves for your productivity. This was a guy who signed the declaration fighting to abolish slavery in the South. Why have we never heard of any of these guys or their stories? See, the problem is when we look at the founding fathers, we're frequently hear about the, the few guys that owned slaves, but not the many that didn't. And the idea is that we're taught the exception and not the rule. There were more guys that signed the declaration that started abolition societies than there were guys that signed the declaration that owned slaves. But do you know every kid that goes to college hears their professor tell them, oh, the founding fathers were racist and bigots and slaveholders. Additionally, they're told that the founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, and deists. The problem is the professors can't prove any of it, but kids don't know any better, so they just believe what they've been told. If you start looking, it's, it's amazing. In fact, Paul Revere, when he made his famous midnight ride, you know he wasn't the only guy that rode that night? There actually were several guys that rode that night. In fact, over the next week or two, there were several dozen guys that rode. One of the guys that rode to warn the Americans the British were coming is this guy right here. His name is Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell was the first black American elected to office in America. He served in public office for nearly 50 years in a variety of positions. Now, one of the arguments people today say, or specifically professors, they like to say that blacks were never allowed to vote, they were never allowed to hold office, etc. in America. Well, then how do you explain Wentworth Cheswell? You can't. The problem is most people don't know history, so we believe something is not true. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You cannot be set free from the truth you don't know. You got to know the truth. And frankly, we don't know very much about history. Or by the way, you look at Lexington Green. When the shot around the world happened, at the end of that shot, there were 18 men lying dead and wounded on the ground. Among those 70 to 80 some odd men that were there, you had people like John Robbins and Prince Esterbrook, a black and white man who were there fighting together. By the way, the reason they were there together is because they were from the church of Reverend Jonas Clark. The Reverend Jonas Clark, it was his men from his church when the British came marching in. They rang his church bell. All the men from his church assembled with their guns and they wanted to oppose 700 British. And when they opposed the British, he told his men that you cannot fire until fired upon. You have to let the British have the first shot. And he explained why. He said, God will not bless an offensive war, but God has given you the right of self-defense. So if they shoot at you, you can shoot back at them. Black and white patriots fighting together. Why have we never heard about these guys? In fact, you have black heroes. The Battle of Bunker Hill is a great example. Over on the right, his name is Peter Salem. He's standing behind this white guy, Thomas Grovesner. Peter Salem was the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. He received over a dozen commendations for his bravery on the battlefield. And today, we've never heard his name before. He was the hero of the battle. Most people who've heard of the Battle of Bunker Hill have no idea that we had a hero, much less that he was a black patriot. Never heard of this guy. Do you know, in fact, in the front of Washington's boat, we've seen this picture many times. Do you know this picture actually was painted by a German who was trying to teach history of America to people in Germany? And he was depicting what America was like. Do you know what he put in the front of this ship? He put two black heroes, Prince Whipple and Oliver Cromwell. He depicted that Americans of all races and all colors were working together to fight for liberty. This was a German explaining to 
Germany, this is the way they do it in America, and it's so different than what we do in Germany. We understood around the world the way Americans did it, only we don't understand it even in America today. In fact, Marquis de Lafayette was a French major general in the Revolution. He actually, uh, this is him pictured with James Armistead. James Armistead was a friend of Lafayette during the Revolution. And Lafayette, as, as a major general, he was very involved in strategy. As, as he got here from France, he looked at the American situation and realized that Americans were going to have to change the way they do things if they're going to be successful. So he started talking to Armistead and was explaining all the problems that, that the Americans were going to face. He says, James, if... If we, don't, if we don't do some things differently, we're not going to win this. And he explained to James, one of the things that we're going to have to have as Americans is we're going to have to have some better intelligence. Because the British, they, they outnumber us, they outgun us, they have more supplies. The only chance we have is if we have better intel and information. That way we can respond better and have a chance to defeat them. So James comes up with this idea. I'm going to pretend to be an escape slave, go into the British camp and, 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 and try to gather intelligence. And I'll come back and tell you what I can find out. So James leaves, and he goes into the British camp pretending to be an escaped slave. So he goes in this camp yelling, guys, please, please. He's running, huffing and puffing. I just escaped from the Americans. I mean, they were so mean, and they beat me, and they abused me. Would, would you British please, can I stay with you guys? And the British said, well, yeah, come stay with us. And they thought, we, we just added another one to our group. So they let James come in. Well, James, strategically, he starts serving in the camp. And the British officers saw him serving and said, you know, we'd like a guy like that to come serve us. He starts serving in the officer's tent. He becomes the personal assistant of Benedict Arnold, the famous American trader. He is with Benedict Arnold the whole time. He's hearing all the military plans. Benedict Arnold is working with Lord Cornwallis. He's getting all the military plans, going back and telling Lafayette everything that's happening. By the way, the Battle of Yorktown, where we defeated Lord Cornwallis, bottled him up. The reason we did that is because of James Armistead. George Washington gave credit to James Armistead for that victory. James Armistead is going back and telling Lafayette what the British are doing, where they're going. Lafayette is then able to rally the Americans. They show up in the right place at the right time, the right amount of men. We start winning some of these skirmishes against the British. It was amazing. We start winning some of these things, and the British start looking at these Americans and go, we thought they were just farmers and pitchforks. And, and, and they're a little better than we thought. So the British start talking. They go, okay, we're going we're to have to do something a little more serious. If we're going to feed the Americans, we're, we're, we're going to have to get a little more serious about this. And as they start talking... They propose an idea, you know, maybe we should send someone to the American camp to spy on the Americans. Maybe we, sh we should find someone that we could, we could send and he could infiltrate in the American camp. And they start talking and they look around the tent and they saw James. <laughs> and they said, James, we have a question. And James says, oh, guys, not me. I mean, I just escaped. Don't make me go back. And they said, James, we consider it a personal favor. You'd be in high esteem. We'll take care of you. We will treat you right if you would do this for us. And James says, well, okay, for you guys, I'll do it. <laughs> he pretends to be a spy for the British. The whole time he's a spy for the Americans. He's the first devil spy in American history. <laughs> the problem is no one has heard of this black hero today. Nobody knows about James Armistead. But by the way, he was in almost every history book in the 1800s. It wasn't until the 1900s that we started changing things. And by the way, I don't know if you've uh, heard of a president, Woodrow Wilson, was a very famous racist. Do you know he, Woodrow Wilson actually showed the very first film on the White House? It was called The Birth of a Nation. It was a recruiting film for the KKK. Woodrow Wilson wrote a series of history books used in public schools, and he eliminated all heroes that were not white from American history. And that set the new standard for public schools. 
Today, we know about none of these heroes. But in the 1800s, we knew about all of them. By the way, it wasn't just black heroes we had. We had Spanish heroes. Bernardo de Galvez, he was the mayor, or excuse me, he was the governor of Cuba. He came up from Cuba, led a group of men to fight the British. Then you had people, uh, Martin de Mayorga. He was the governor of Guatemala. He sent a delegation up to join with Bernardo, and their troops went together to oppose the British. You also had people, Francisco Saavedra, who was a Spanish government official at the time, who made sure that the those Spanish fighting the British had funds, had supplies. He sent more men to help them. We had Spanish fighting with us in the revolution. Most people have never heard that before. And by the way, it wasn't just the men. You also had women. Sybil Ludington was considered the female Paul Revere. She used to be in every single history book for her famous midnight ride. She made a ride that actually was able to rally Americans. They came and stopped the British, kept the British from coming and conquering a town, which ultimately would have led to them conquering the state. She was an incredible heroine, and today most people never heard her name. Or people like Elizabeth Lewis, a great example. Elizabeth Lewis was, was the wife of a signer of the Declaration, Francis Lewis. And when the British landed in America, they were looking for all 56 signers because they were going to put them to death. And they went to the home of Francis Lewis. When they got to the home, the, the British officer, when he saw Francis wasn't there, he committed everybody out of the house because they're going to burn the house to the ground. Well, Elizabeth Lewis came to the doorframe of her house, and she plants herself in the doorframe of the house. She says, I'm not leaving. The officer said, lady, get out of the house. We're burning down. She says, I'm not leaving. Still planted in the doorframe. The officer says, lady, if you don't leave, I'm going to command my troops to open fire on the house right now. She says, I don't care. I'm not leaving. The officer told his troops to fire. One of the men fired a cannon. The cannonball went between her legs, blew out boards on the boardwalk where she was standing. One of the servants came over, got her, said, man, we got to go. We got to go. She says, no, I'm fine. There's no way they can hit the same spot twice. I'm staying here. Because of her defiance, the British officer got her, threw her into prison. She actually was a prisoner of war, was so abused and mistreated. Washington finally found out about it, worked out a prisoner of war exchange to get her released. She died very shortly after her release because in prison they were so angry at her, frustrated with her, they neglected to give her bread and water many meals a day. Other prisoners were trying to sneak her bread and water just to keep her alive. The British ultimately destroyed her health, which caused her death. This is an incredible heroine today. Most people never heard of her story. It's amazing. In fact, even Jews, Heim Solomon was a Jewish immigrant from Poland. He got to America a couple years before the revolution. He actually was considered the financier of the revolution. He funded the revolution. That's a, a statue of him shaking Washington's hand because he was one of the two guys responsible for funding the revolution so it could take place. And he wasn't the only Jew that supported the revolution. You have people, Colonel David and Isaac Franks, both fought in the revolution. Isaac Moses fought in the revolution. Major Benjamin Nunn's fought in the revolution. Mordecai Sheftal fought in the revolution revolution. It's amazing when you start looking through history and you see all the people that unified for a cause and fought for the sake of freedom and liberty, which by the way goes back to what we understood all the way back to the laws of nature, that God intends for people to be free. The revolution was a fight for freedom. This is what we understood. The problem is most people don't know history very well anymore, so we, we really get a skewed perspective. Well, if you look at other things, what does the law of nature teach us? Look at things like abortion. Do you know of the 10 million species, there's not a single species that murders its young while it's still in the womb. Humans are the only ones that do that. You can just look at the laws of nature and know that's not the way God intended it. You look at things like homosexuality. Of the 10 million species, there's not a single homosexual species. Now, I could venture to say if there ever was, that's the reason they're not still here. I grew up on a farm in Texas. We have cows, we have horses, we have sheep, we have dogs. I've seen a lot of nature, and I can tell you that's not the way it ever works. 
It's not the way God intended it. See, you can just look at the laws of nature and understand that pretty simple. Look at the idea of property. Why is it that animals become territorial? Because God put something in them. They protect their property. They protect their home. They will defend their home. They will guard their home. See, you just look at the laws of nature. But here's the problem. There are some things you look at the laws of nature and are not as clear of a picture. For instance, the idea of theft. Does theft happen in nature? Yes. Is theft God's idea? No. Or look at something like incest. Incest ugh, happens in nature. Not God's idea. Or murder happens in nature. Not God's idea. And this is why Blackstone said we don't just look at the laws of nature. We also look at the laws of nature's God. Because what we don't understand clearly through creation, you can understand clearly through the laws of nature's God because the Bible is real clear about the way all that works. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. The Bible is real clear about all that. And this is why Blackstone said you have the laws of nature and the laws of nature God. And Blackstone, by the way, is the one that clarified those two things are what make up the common law. The common law is what the Constitution says that we abide under in America today. That means the laws of nature, nature's God. That is what we operate under. This is where we go back to understand God has a standard. There is a fixed moral standard that God has an expectation. This is the way things work. Well, here's the last thing. The fifth thing, governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. The fifth thing we understood is that we have the consent of the governed. That we, the people, have a voice. That we get to choose, we get to take part. Well, this is what we understood plainly. In fact, Washington, he was a member of the Federalist Party. This is what George Washington explained. He said, the fundamental principle of our Constitution requires that the will of the majority shall prevail. What the people want, they need to get. Thomas Jefferson was a member of the Anti-Federalist Party. He is the opposite of Washington, but the Anti-Federalist, even Jefferson explained it this way. He said, the will of the majority is the natural law of every society and is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. Both of these guys explained, we believe in the will of the majority. Now, that's something that's very clearly outlined in the Constitution, or excuse me, in the Declaration, but let me just, let, let me set this up for you. Notice there is a sequence and there's significance to this. In the Declaration, we said there is a God, that God has given rights to man, that government's job is to protect those rights, that there is a fixed moral law, and you can have the consent of the governed as long as it does not contradict the first four. The consent of the governed cannot contradict God's moral law, cannot contradict God's inalienable rights, if God has established something, if 51% of the people decide that murder's okay, murder will not be okay. Because it goes against the moral law. It goes against what God has given the right to man, that government is there to protect. See, the consent of the governed is great as long as it doesn't contradict those first four principles. And this is what we understood. See, government is there to protect what God has given. And, and we, the people, we get to have choices as long as it doesn't violate those things. But notice how much hinges on the belief that there is a God who's given rights, that God has a standard. This is why there's a very simple truth that a secular government will not and cannot be a limited government. Because if there is not a God, government must take that place. Either God gives us rights or government does. And when we look at an intrusive government today, do you know the reason government's intrusive? Because they think they give rights. They don't understand, no, no, no our rights have come from God. So you start thinking, what, what rights has God given? What did God establish? Well, you think about something like traditional marriage. Did God establish that? Yes. Then government's job is to protect what God established. But we have a government trying to redefine what God established. You are not God. Your job is to protect what God has already established. This is what we understood in the Declaration. You take something like the right to life. God gave the right to life. So government, your job is to protect it, not to redefine it. 
Your job is to protect the rights that God has given us, the rights of conscience. Your job is to protect what God has given us. And now we have people going, well, I don't think the rights of conscience. We dealt with this with the Hobby Lobby case. We dealt with this with military chaplains. This is a big deal because government thinks they should be able to tell people to do whatever it is they want them to do because they don't think there's a God-given right of conscience. Why? Because they think government is the God. Government gets to decide what you can and can't do. There's a problem there. Government, your job is to protect what God's already established. Take the idea of religious expressions. God very clearly has given us the freedom to worship. Government, your job is to protect it. But right now we have a government saying, well, you can worship here, but not here. You can say this, but not this. No, no, no. Your job is not to define God's rights. Your job is to protect God's rights. That is the job of government. Even something like the right of self-defense or self-protection. I don't need you to come in and regulate that. Your job is to protect that because that is a God-given right. It's amazing you start looking at this and this is where you quickly understand if you have a government that does not believe there is a God, then they believe they control every one of your inalienable rights. And when we designed the declaration, we wrote the declaration, it hinges on the fact that there is a God and our rights come from God and government's job is to protect the rights that God has given us. If we don't have that understanding, then I can tell you exactly what government's gonna look like and it's what we're seeing today. In fact, John Adams, after we wrote the Constitution, John Adams was asked, is the Constitution going to last? Here's how John Adams answered that question. He said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Is it gonna last? Well, it depends on the people because it was made only for a moral and religious people because it's all about giving freedom to man. But freedom doesn't work with immoral people. See, this goes back to the notion, if, if we believe there's a God and that God has a fixed moral standard, and if you do it God's way, freedom works every time. But there's got to be a God. See, we understood it's got to be a God consciousness, a God notion for it to work. Even George Washington, he explained in his farewell address, of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let me just address something. There's a growing libertarian movement that says we believe in freedom and we don't need religion. George Washington actually addressed that in his farewell address. Here's what he said. He said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Libertarians want us to be good people without religion. Washington said, let, let's, let's just slow down before you make that argument. Here's what Washington explained. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Reason is what we would know as logic or common sense. Experience is our past. It's history. Common sense and history should both reveal to you that you will never have a good people if they're not a religious people. Morality does not work if there's not religion as the basis of that morality. This is what Washington explains. As you look at our nation, we were founded on this idea there is a God who has given us rights. The government's job is to protect those rights. God is a fixed moral standard, but below that, we have the choice for what we want to do as long as it doesn't contradict one of those first four things. And this is why you look at our nation. Why is our nation in trouble today? We have forgotten the philosophy. See, the fruit that we are eating today doesn't taste very good. It's because we've planted different seeds. If we want to get back to the fruit that we enjoy, we got to start planting a different seed. And that seed goes back to what we saw in the Declaration. That was our philosophy of government. This philosophy is what produced American exceptionalism. It's back to the Declaration, those 126 words, five immutable principles. And by the way, the Declaration is the foundation that the Constitution was built on. The Constitution was built on those ideas. What we did in the Constitution was as a response to the Declaration. Those two documents work hand in hand. 
As I close, I want to close with a thought. President Calvin Coolidge, he said, the more I study the Constitution, the more I realize that no other document devised by the hand of man has brought so much progress and happiness to humanity. To live under the American Constitution is the greatest political privilege that was ever accorded to the human race. He said, I can't imagine people being more blessed to live anywhere than America because the system of government we have is the best in the world. Let me close by just addressing this. There's no other place you'd rather be. God has blessed you to live where you live. We have one of the greatest, most successful documents and governments in the history of the world, but it was built on the principles of Christianity. And as our nation removes itself from those principles, our government is ceasing to work. The problem isn't that we need a new government, it's we need to change the hearts of man. And this is where as Christians, we gotta be challenged. I'm gonna close with this statement from President Garfield. President Garfield, he was addressing this notion of, of elected officials. And here's what he explained. Now more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If we got a problem in government, it's because we allow there to be a problem in government. If you don't like it, get involved and be part of the solution. Get involved and make a change. See, too often as Christians, we like to complain. We don't like to get involved. You can't complain. You got to be part of the solution to overcome this problem. He went on. He said, if it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. He closed by saying, if the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. If we cease to be great, it's because Christians have been disengaged from the process. You've got an election coming up. And here's what I can tell you. Statistically, only 25% of Christians vote in any given election. Statistically, we only have about 25% of good elected officials. It's a direct correlation. If we want to see this thing turned around, the people that aid in controlling the morality, the structure, we have to get involved. We have to be the solution. As Christians, understand the philosophy, understand what makes us great, but then we gotta get off our talent and do something. We have got to get involved in the process. If you want more information, go to wallbuilders.com. We actually have voters guides on, on our wallbuilders website where you can find out where these candidates stand, do research, know who they are, know what they stand for, what they believe. Make sure life is the number one priority because that's going to reveal everything else you need to know about them. Life is the most important. And by the way, if someone is 50% life and someone is 80% pro-death, 50% is better than 20%. You got to be strategic. Who will support life the most? And that's who I support. As Christians, we got to be strategic. If you want more resources, we've got all kinds of stuff on our website. We've got catalogs. I know we've already sold a lot of stuff, but we want to help educate you so you can know the truth, so you can start standing up for what's right. It's time for Christians to get back involved in the process so we can see these principles restored once again. Thank you guys so much. Come on, somebody say, wow. Now we're going to give you the opportunity. Yeah, stand up on your feet and give God the praise. Awesome, awesome, awesome.
Thank you so much. Ushers, would you help me? You may be seated. Uh, how many of you believe that the message preached tonight, as well as this morning's message, needs to get out to America? How many of you believe that? Okay, good. So let's, let's give to see that happen. We're going to give right now, and uh, this is going to go into wall builders. The entirety of this offering will go towards wall builders. Man, I am I'm fired up tonight. Praise the Lord. What a powerful presentation. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus one more time. Tim, thanks so much. Wow, great. We already made a deal. We're going to have him come back. We're going to do some stuff in the schools next time he comes back, and, um, and we'll have services again. So great to have you. What an honor. And uh, we do send our greetings to your father and to the whole team of wall builders. Thank you so much for what you're doing. This just needs to be all over America. Again, if you're making out a check, make it out to KC. If you want to use your debit card, you can certainly do that also. Online, you can give tonight through the secured server. Uh, all the messages from this, this morning, this morning's message and tonight will be up and available on our, uh, our website uh, by about midweek, Wednesday, Thursday. Amen. By Thursday, it'll be up. Thursday morning then. Yeah, Thursday afternoon, it'll be up. And um, it takes us a little bit to process some of those things. KCAlaska.com and um, the video will be available on YouTube. Thank you so much. <laughs> God bless America. I said, God bless America. Amen. Ushers, would you come? Father, we thank you for wall builders. We thank you for the Barton family and the team that you've placed together. And we're so thankful for them, Lord, that you've guarded over them and protect them, Lord. That you'd use them to destroy every high and lofty thought that's raised up against the knowledge of God. That you would use them in a powerful way to turn the hearts and the minds of people everywhere they go. I pray that you would open up an effectual door. That you would open up doors of opportunity to turn even people in office. I pray, oh God, that you would smile upon them with favor. Grant to them favor favor, favor and grace to be a, a crier to, to declare clearly as they put a trumpet to their mouth the word of the Lord over America that America would come back out of its backslidden state return with all our heart to you that you oh God would once again make America great from sea to shining sea, that every mountain we'd be brought low, that every valley would be raised up, that the crooked places would be made straight, that you would bring a mighty revival across denominational lines. Lord, as you swept through our country, the 
different times, Lord, through great revivals like George Whitfield and different ones, may you do it again. May you raise up young pioneers and revivalists to declare the truth of your word and that we would see a generation that would turn back to God. And your people, if your people who would call by, their, by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, then we'll heal our land. May it be so. May the body of Christ rise. And our blood bought right to declare and proclaim the truth of the gospel, Lord, and turn our nation back to you. Hearts to the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. We thank you for the great privilege of living here. Now bless this offering, God. Bless the gift and the giver and multiply it many times over. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Ushers, go ahead. I think it'd only be right that we pray for our country and if you'd stand up upon your feet. And Tim, would you would you just come and lead us again in application of the message that you preached? Come on, let's pray for America. God, we ask that you would help our nation to once again recognize who God is. God, that our eyes would be opened. God, open the eyes of our understanding. God, that people could see the truth of who you are, the truth of your kingdom. God, that we could just understand your principles, that your ways work. God, we bind the attacks of the enemy. As he comes and he deceives and he lies, Lord, shut the mouth of that liar. Lord, let people know. God, the thing that has made our nation so strong and so successful for so long is because we've relied on you. And God, as we struggle in situations in different areas. God, you've given us a solution that if we would turn to you, if we would once again do it your way, that you would restore and you would forgive. So God, I ask that you would lead the nation back to you. And God, specifically, I pray for the churches as there are 350,000 churches in our nation as 80% of our nation claims to know you. Lord, I ask that you would stir in your children. God, that you would stir in your kids a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. God, that we would once again have a desire for you and your kingdom and your truth. God, forgive us for where we've been wrong. Lord, don't allow us to slip too far. But God, as a remnant, we cry out to you. 
God, we cry out in hope and optimism, knowing God that you are greater than every giant in our land. And just as the Israelites had to conquer giants when they went to Canaan, God, we are not scared of giants because we know you're greater. God, give us the boldness and courage to take on the giants we face. God, that we will not be discouraged, we will not be disappointed, we will not be overcome because greater is he that is in me than any giant in this world. God, we rely on you. Holy Spirit, empower us as we go from this place tonight. Use us to make a difference. Lord, let our ears be sensitive to your voice. Let our eyes be open to see your truth. And God, let our hearts be ever sensitive to your leading. God, knowing that as your kids get back into you, we'll see this nation turned around. God, stir up a remnant that we could see revival, that we would see this nation return to the place where they can acknowledge that you are our God. Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you. And we thank you for the strength that now we can go make a difference. God, not just asking you to do it as we sit back and watch, but God, use us to be part of the solution as we see this nation turned around. Use us, Lord, to make a difference. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're not right with God, we wanna give you the opportunity to give your heart to Jesus tonight, whether it be for the first time or in recommitment. If you're not right with God, won't you? Won't you get right with God tonight? Won't you ask him to forgive you, to come into your life? Won't you believe on the Lord Jesus that he died on the cross for you, rose from the grave for you? If that's you, would you just pray this prayer just right out loud? And all of us, let's just affirm our faith and pray with them, those online, those here. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in my place to take my sin upon him on the cross. I believe that he died and on the third day he rose again from the grave. Lord, forgive me for all of my sin. Come into my life. Be my savior. Wash me and cleanse me and make me new. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill and touch each and every one, Lord, of the fire of your spirit. Burn in our hearts as we take action. We would not be apathetic or lethargic in our stand for truth in our nation. We would take action, Lord. We would write letters, we would make phone calls, we would vote. We would, even as we move towards the presidential elections, and just really around the corner, we pray, God, that we would make a difference as we pray. We do all that you call us to. We thank you for elected officials that are even here, gathered with us tonight, those that might even watch this later. 
that you would bless them as they obey your word and live for you. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Amen. God bless America. Would you say that with me? God bless America. We'll hope to see you Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Bless you.